Colossians chapter three, Paul writes to the church, uh, writes to the Colossians, verse one. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth, for, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on... The new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Lord Jesus, help us to understand what it is that you speak to your church tonight. Help us to be able to just be infused with, with the filling of your Holy Spirit. Just eradicate anything in our hearts that would be displeasing to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I ever talked to you about what I believe is the saddest verse in all of the Bible. If you're in youth ministry with me, maybe you've, you've heard this before, but the saddest verse in all of the Bible to me is in Luke chapter 18. After Jesus talks about the parable of the persistent widow and, you know, there's a widow who constantly bugs this one judge saying, give me justice, give me justice, give me justice. And finally the judge says, well, I really don't like God and I don't care about people, but this woman is so annoying that I just have to give her justice. And then God says, and don't you think that God will avenge his children when they call out to him day and night? But, and here's the saddest verse, but when the Son of Man returns, will he really find faith on the earth? That, I think, is the saddest verse in the Bible. It's almost like the, the world that we live in today, there's really two options. Either Jesus comes back or there's a revival. Either we enter into tribulation times especially with the way that things look in the world. And it means crazy. It's bananas. Like in some of the conspiracy theories, they're like, oh, they're kind of like, there was a little bit of truth in some of the crazy things they said. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, so let me back up. You know, just erase that from the tape. But anybody who looks at the world, whether you're left or right, it doesn't matter. Everybody is freaking out and going, this is nuts. I can't remember a single time in my life that people lived in this much fear about the future, your health, government, other countries, Afghanistan, what you're seeing like, when can you ever think of a time in your life that you saw people clinging to a plane as it takes off because they're so desperate to get out of the country, right? It's just, the world's gone crazy. And so Jesus says, you know, don't you think when God's people cry out to him day and night, for the God of all justice to come and bring justice to the earth. Don't you think he's going to answer? Don't you think he's going to listen to your prayers? But, I mean, when Jesus comes back, will he really find faith in the earth? In, in other words, will this be Jesus' reaction when he comes back to earth? He comes on a cloud, like the Lion and the Lamb song, coming on the clouds, you know, comes down and he goes, all right, I know. I know no one's really praying, no one's really seeking, no one really, no one really believes I want to revive them. So fine, I'm coming back and I'm bailing everybody out. We're going to heaven. 
Like, wouldn't that be terrible? Or is there an expectancy where people are constantly pleading and calling out to God? What you see on the news should all drive us to our knees in prayer. The things that you're hearing about, whether it's a podcast you're watching on the news, it doesn't matter. Like, all of us should look at what's happening in Afghanistan and just be completely wrecked from the inside out, which is compassion for people that are hurting. It doesn't, you know, there are Christians being persecuted. People are afraid of maybe their lives are going to be taken. Women who are living in fear. There's a ton of crazy things happening right now. That should drive church people to pray and say, oh, Lord, would you bring justice to the people who literally we cannot help? I saw there's a campaign where someone was trying to get a private plane and bail out people from Afghanistan who are trapped there, American citizens or whatever. And they're like, we can only take 300 people on a plane, but it'll cost us $500,000. And they raised $5 million in just a day of people looking and saying, we want to help in whatever way possible. Should it not drive Christians to go that much deeper in prayer, saying, well, we, we can't evacuate people physically, but we do have a God who hears and who can save with his mighty arm, who can spare people in a different country who believe in Jesus Christ and may die now because of their faith. Now, why am I saying all this? Well, I think times like this, when you have like a reality check of what happens to some persecuted Christians around the world, it makes you really uh, humbled in terms of the things that we face on a daily basis. And I'm not talking about like, you know, I'm not talking about the fact that, you know, you have to wear a mask, get vaccinated or anything like that. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about sin. Think Like, what is your biggest challenge and difficulty in your life? And for a lot of us, it might be sexual sin. For a lot of us, it might be kicking an addiction. Now compare those things to what people face in another country where people are so desperate, they're throwing their babies over a barbed wire to American soldiers so that the babies can be saved. I mean, what kind of level of desperation do you have to be to be in a place like that? And here we are, we're struggling with our sin and that's our biggest challenge, is self-inflicted pain based on the sin that we are just addicted to because we're caught up in the American dream. We're caught up in a pursuit of success or wealth or whatever it is. And those things are self-caused. In other words, like no one's forcing you to worship money. No one's forcing you to worship a relationship or worship sex or worship pornography or no one's forcing you to do any of those things. And so what happens? The Christian witness gets tarnished because people are not actually serving Jesus Christ as Lord. People are serving themselves and calling themselves Christians. Yes, I have Jesus Christ in my heart and that's why it's so important that we are in church, the church stays open and we do. And we become very passionate, very vocal, but then you see pastors falling into sexual sin. A pastor that I know, not personally, but you know, in front of a friend who many people know, caught up in a sex scandal recently. And I just kind of go like, it's just so strange that it seems like so many people in America are, maybe it's always been this way. And maybe it's just the news that's hyping these things. But there are so many people falling into sexual sin. And therefore, the kingdom of God fails to advance because people are stuck in sin. But then you're thinking, well, well I thought Christianity wasn't about being a good person. Wasn't it all about grace? Isn't that the whole point? Like, doesn't matter what you do. Well, some people believe that. Some people believe that, you know, Christianity really is about, 
It doesn't matter what you do. You just kind of live your life and that's whatever. And, and those are more progressive Christians. And, and so they'll curse all the time or they'll, they'll just get wasted on the weekends and like, hey, but I'm not perfect, but I'm forgiven. And they'll have that little bumper sticker. Like, is that what the point of Christianity is? Or is it the exact opposite, which is, no, it is about what you do. And the fact that you're living in sin proves that you're not really a Christian. You're not really saved and you're probably going to hell. So there's differing views, right? But why are there lists of things, like in Colossians? Why in the world did Paul give a list of things that we're supposed to do? He says, verse 5, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. So why does he say, stop doing those things? I thought, I thought it was about grace. What's Paul talking about? Well, here's, here's the thing. Good works are good evidence that God has truly touched your heart. So this is not appeal to works. This is appeal to your identity. Because who you are determines what you do. Right? So if I walk into a restaurant, what do I do? You've heard this illustration before. What do I do? Well, some of you would say, well, you, you wait till the server comes and seats you, and then, you know, you order your food. Well, if I'm a customer, that's what I do. But if I'm a server or if I'm a chef, I go to my department and I get to work. It all depends who you are, and that determines what you do. So I, this is the appeal that Paul makes is your identity being in Christ determines what you do. If you're a Christian, if you're a Christ follower, that should lead to you living out that identity. I mean, how foolish would it be if you go into a restaurant and like, oh, I'm so stressed out. I just, oh, okay, I'll take this customer's order. But you don't even work there. Everyone goes, what are you doing? Like, I just felt bad because you guys are really busy and I thought I could help. I thought this is like probably what I should do. You don't work there. And so Christians burden themselves with all kinds of things that they're not called to do because they've forgotten about their true identity. So, Although moral perfection is impossible in this life, here's the other thing, moral progress is. And maybe that's where people are today. They're just like, well, you know, that person sins, this person sins, I sin. We all sin. It's just the way it is. We're just all going to be sinners for the rest of our lives. But it is true that God expects us to grow in our walk with him. Otherwise, it's like in, in 1 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 3, where Paul talks about, if you build on a foundation other than Christ, maybe your soul is going to be saved, but you're going to get to heaven and have zero rewards. You're going to be like a person who barely passed through the flames. I mean, is that really how you want to live your life? Is you just barely made it to heaven? Everybody else is like, look what I did, Lord. Here's my talent. Here's what you've given me. Here's how I invested it. And here's, here's what I did all for you. This is all the worship I have for you. And you're like, oh, man, I spent all of my life serving myself. You got there. You barely got there, but you got there. So we need to see that God expects that if we truly believe in him, we're going to follow him. And that moral progress becomes evidence to the world so that other people can be set free of their sins. It's very hard to convince people of the message you preach when your life doesn't reflect it. So 
if you've ever had your car fixed, right? Car fixed in a pretty big way. You bring in a mechanic, take it out. The car being fixed, it runs. Your friends go, oh, wow, what was wrong with it? And they start asking questions about it. They know that something has changed with the vehicle because it runs now. And like, oh, maybe I'll go to your mechanic because it seems like it did a good job. When the ladies get their hair done or their nails done, like Jenna kind of started this revolution and everyone goes to this one nail salon lady. It's like, whoa, where did you get that done? I want to go there too because they did an amazing job. But if Christians are going to like the worst nail salon ever, you know, it's like, why does anybody want to become a Christian if you look exactly the way that I do? Or worse, oftentimes. So Paul has this conversation with the Colossians in this chapter. But it always stems from his identity. And I know that for some people, that's a terrifying thought. I actually knew when I was in high school, a guy who said that, I, I don't know if I want to become a Christian because I'm afraid that I'll stop being me. I'll stop doing the things that I love. I'll stop being the person that everybody loves me for. And I would say that's partially true. But since Jesus designed you and created you for a purpose, what you have to realize is you don't become a Christian and stop being you. You actually have the ability to fully become yourself. So think about this. If you've ever been around, I mean, plenty of people have done this, right? You ever be, you're ever around a person who's just like plastered, like so drunk. Now they're falling over themselves. They're like flirting with people that they totally shouldn't be flirting with. The thing that's disturbing about that is that's not them. They say, no, this is the real me. The, the, the real me is when I'm really high or really wasted. or really, It's not. If anyone's ever gone through addictions before, like I know some people have, they start stealing from their parents, stealing from their girlfriend. They start doing things they never imagined they would do just to get money for drugs. You can't say, well, that person's really, like, that's the real them. Everybody knows they're sick. Something's wrong with them. That's what sin does. It dehumanizes us. and makes us less than the person that we're supposed to be. And here's the other thing. Sin always takes from you. It always wants more. It doesn't just stop at pornography. It'll, it'll get worse. It doesn't just stop with one affair. It'll multiply. Sin never has enough. And so you can't just say, well, this is just the real me. Because you'll find yourself giving into your desires more and more. Your desires get more depraved. And then at some point, you lose yourself completely. So this is why Jesus said, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You follow Jesus, you become the person that you were designed to be. I would never imagine myself to be where I am today doing what I'm doing. But it's only by following Jesus that I look back and I go, whoa, I see why God put that desire in me when I was just a little kid. There are things that I wanted to do when I was just eight years old, six years old. I always want to tell people about Jesus ever since I was little. I would tell my neighbor, my first friend, you know, like I remember like we were around the corner of my house and I just felt compelled like at eight years old. I was like, I need to tell him about Jesus. So I started evangelizing my friend at like eight years old. I've always had that desire in my heart. And now, you know, 30 years, almost, I guess 25 years later, I'm doing the same thing. But so many people, like the desires they have when they're little kids, they forget about. But like those little things are still there. It's like when you're little, you had this heart of compassion. You wanted to give. Or maybe you had a heart of worship. 
and you were bold and you raised your hands in children's worship and you loved doing the dances and all those, those different things. And you lose that when you become a young adult because you start trying to emulate the things that you see in the world because you think that's what makes you happy or successful and it's not true. So my, my brother, when he was probably like same age, probably like six or seven years old, he was wearing the sweater that my sister had. My sister's three years older than me my, and my brother's three years younger than me. So he's wearing this sweater that my sister gave him and it was like a knit dog sweater. And he wore that thing literally to death from six all the way to like 14. He was wearing the same sweater and it just unraveled until it was like basically a crop top, crop top sweater on my little brother. And he's a little chunky when he was 13. So he's just, at some point you gotta go like, Daniel, stop wearing this sweater. This doesn't fit you anymore. And that's actually the sense that, that Paul is getting at. You should stop trying on sin because it doesn't fit you anymore. Instead, put on that new man. Put on that new identity. Walk in those things. Because if you try to go back to your sin, you're never going to be happy. And you know that's true. If you try going back to, to the old life that you knew before Christ, you're always going to have that pit in your stomach that you're doing something wrong. You're never going to have that satisfaction that you were able to have before you knew Christ. So instead, walk in that image of Jesus. So specifically, what we're going to cover tonight is what Paul talked about with the Colossians, which is purity inside and your conduct outside. Purity inside and conduct outside. So it's important to recognize that if we're going to take up a new life, that we have to be willing to part with old ways. If you're a person who says, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready to give up my sin and follow Jesus wholeheartedly. Then you have to recognize there are certain things that you're used to that you're going to have to give up. This is true of exercise. If you're saying that for the remainder of this year, I want to lose 10 pounds or I want to build more muscle, you have to be willing to change your habits which may mean that you do things like, I'm not going to eat certain things, or I'm going to get more sleep every night. I have to go to bed earlier so that I can replenish my energy for the next morning. It's also true generally of your health, that if you want to be a healthy person, you need to stop smoking, or you need to quit, you know, just watching TV and you're watching on the couch, you're snacking all the time. There are certain things that we need to put away if we want to walk in that New life. That's why verse 5 says, Put to death your members which are on the earth. The SV trans translation says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. I love that. And so, you know, it's almost like the same where people say old, old habits die hard. And if Christ has buried the old man, if he's truly put that stuff to death within you, then it's not our job to resurrect him. It's not our job to dig up the grave at that old man or old woman that we used to be. So in verse 5 through verse 7, we're going to see the purity inside before God. And so he says, So put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. So fornication, the first thing. 
Now, this is the Greek word pornea, which just means sexual intercourse, any type of sexual gratification outside of marriage. And so that includes masturbation. That includes pornography. That includes any time that you would seek to sexually satisfy yourself or make someone else the sexual affection or sexual object of your affection other than your God-given spouse. And if you're not married, then to make anyone the object of your sexual affection would be sin. That would include lusting, fantasizing, any type of action towards those things would be sin. And Paul says it's not fitting for you. Those things are destructive. And so once again, it's dehumanizing. You begin to look people differently. You begin to look at yourself differently when we engage in sexual acts. If you have a girlfriend or boyfriend and you're sexually active with them, you look at them completely differently after you sleep with them than you did before. It's the way that God designed us, that we would bond together after sex. So if we begin to engage in those activities, you better expect that your judgment is going to be clouded. Your heart's going to be torn because you're supposed to bond with this individual. And if you just have casual sex, then you're actually ripping apart the part of your brain, the chemicals in your brain, which are teaching you to bond, and you're teaching yourself that sexual activity is not for bonding of two individuals. So how does that play out when you get married and now you are supposed to bond with this person, you're having trouble bonding with that person because it's always been a recreational activity that you specifically said, this is just recreation, this is not for trust, this is not for emotional support or development. So he goes on, uncleanness. And so this is here talking about, it's the broader definition of just pornea. It's just any kind of, of general uncleanness that would uh, range sexually or, or just, you know, this might be the way that you talk, the way that you view the world. And then he says, in pa uh, the next one's passion, which is just basically shameful sexual excess. When people are just saying to themselves, you know, there is no limit to what I can do and who I want to be with, which leads to evil desire. And that right there is the same thing as lust. And then finally, covetousness, which is idolatry. And then you might go through that list and go, whew, okay, good. I don't have any of those things. I don't have any of those problems. Well, good for you. But I would, I would just say like, maybe you want to go through that list again. Because the fact of the matter is, we usually look at the big sins and we exempt ourselves because like, well, I didn't go that far. I mean, I didn't like sleep with the person, you know, like we had oral sex. Or you know what? It's like we didn't have oral sex, but you know, we make out or we, and you just justify yourself. Or like, it's okay for me to engage in this activity because it's not as bad as what this person did. Well, I, I didn't have an affair. Like we're both consenting adults. And the fact of the matter is people fall deeply into sin through very small compromises. This is why you see in Genesis chapter 4 that, that uh, God speaks to Cain, that he says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desires for you, that you but you should rule over it. That sin wants to make you its slave. And so it always starts with just small little compromises and it will always build up. 
This is what led to David and Bathsheba and their adulterous relationship. First, it was David just lusting after Bathsheba. Then it led to David thinking and planning and preparing, how can I engage in sexual intercourse? He does, which leads to him saying, well, how do I cover this up? Which leads to him eventually killing her husband and then marrying her and trying to bury his sin. So you may have some victory right now, but we have to make sure that all of us never resurrect those old habits. So here's the thing that you you can't miss. This is so important. We all have to recognize that we all have the ability to go to the depths of sin, all of us. So whenever we look at somebody else like the pedophile, when we look at the child molester, when we look at the rapist, and we go, oh, my, my, we should. We should be repulsed at those things. But recognize all those sins begin with small sins that build up over time. When someone says, I will not restrain myself from anything. I'm going to just give into my de- desires however they come and whatever they are. Obviously, some people are more mentally deranged than others, but you can't let mental sickness absolve you from the ability that you might fall into the same place. You can't say like, well, it's just because that person's a mass murderer and he's crazy and he's just, obviously there's something wrong with him. Like you have to recognize like people don't just kill people randomly. Even the crazy people don't just kill people randomly. It's always small things that build up over time. No one would bring a person to court after he just committed a murder and said, well, what was the cause? And he said, no cause. I just randomly decided to end somebody's life. What you hear is stuff like, for years, I've been bullied. For years, I've been put down. And I've been so angry. I stood up to myself. And this person kept on poking me and pestering me. And eventually, and it builds up. There's always a story because humans are, humans are logical and reasonable. And when we give in to the logic of sin, its end is always death. So that means we should all examine our thought life and our beliefs. So for, for us, that, for people that are guys, ask yourself, like, do I objectify women? Do I look at women as, as like objects to be won, like it's just a game? Or do I view them as valuable daughters of God? And if you do view them as valuable daughters of God, then you should respect them and respect friendships and pursue friendships above sexual intimacy and above even marriage. Or it just could be in your conversation, the way that you talk about women or the way that you talk about men and the way that we talk about people like they're not people. Even the putting down of other people, the way that we gossip about people, we dehumanize other people and therefore we objectify them. Or it could be just the undue weight that we give to a relationship in general. Like, think about anybody who's ever been single on Valentine's Day, which I was, you know, throughout my 20s, 29 times, I've been single on Valentine's Day. So I know the feelings. Valentine's Day, and everybody's thought is, I need to have a Valentine. Maybe you don't. Or it's just like a thought, and you're like, okay, I didn't plan out my post on TikTok or Instagram. It's like, okay, it's going to be like a teddy bear. And it's like, I'm dating myself for Valentine's Day. It's just, you know, whatever. Just corny things. I've never done stuff like that. I'm like, Thank God it wasn't that crazy. But moving on, when you start to have that feeling, whether or not you post about it, 
when you have that feeling in your heart of covetousness, you look, you scroll through and everybody's perfect, happy relationship and you hate them. You're like, I don't even believe in voodoo dolls, but I'm going to buy one just for them. I can't stand that person, right? You just look at people and you're so envious of other people's lives or relationships. And the fact of the matter is that is idolizing a relationship, idolizing marriage. And that will lead to greater and greater sin. That will follow you in marriage. Because then you find a relationship. And you're like, well, how come we're not as happy as those people? You get married. And you're like, is everybody's marriage like this? Because it doesn't seem like that for everybody else. This is just me. Why can't we just be this happy? Why are we struggling this much? You know, to be honest, and I think Jen and I have talked about this before, like our first year of marriage was crazy, wild, bananas. Because obviously jumping into having three kids at the same time for me as an instant dad. And so she had her routines and I had a routine of being a single guy for 29 years. So I jumped into this relationship, everything just kind of like clashing together. You didn't have any time. Like, I've talked about this a billion times, but just in case you're new, so it's like, all we do all day is like, she works full-time. I, I work full-time. We wake up at 6 a.m., try to do some reading, but Tatum's screaming because she's just a little baby. And then all throughout the day, you're just taking care of kids. Satan, why did you do that to my papers? <laughs> For those listening online, my notes just fell off. It was obviously the devil, which means I must be preaching a good word because he wants to stop me. But I will not let Satan. Okay. So all day, you know, all we're doing is just taking care of kids and then it's nighttime and then putting them in bed and then they go to bed like 10.30 at night because none of us know how to like put kids to the bed and, you know, and have conversations. And then Jenna falls asleep. It's like 10.30 at night. So we don't even have a conversation. We never get to build our friendship. And it's just our conversations during that first year was just like, is everybody this like stressed out? Is it this difficult for everybody? And I would say, no, it's probably, like we probably have a more difficult marriage and probably more difficult beginning than most people's relationships. But anything that's worth anything in life is always difficult. And that's kind of the word I want to give to you right now is like the struggle that you find with sin is not, is not a battle that will not have a reward. That when you're struggling with sin, that means that you're still alive. The difference between struggling with sin and living in sin is there's life in one end and there's death in the other. A person who's struggling still has life. They hate the fact that they still sin. But the more that you pursue the upper call of Jesus Christ, the more that you pursue him, it will get easier. You will find victory. You will find hope. And that same struggle, you'll be able to relate with other people and help them find victory as well. So verse six, let's continue on. He says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. So Paul says, first you need to remember, like, don't forget the wrath of God is coming to the world. Why? Because of sin in the world. The very same sin that you're comfortable with right now. But this is something that you once did. You once walked in these things and now that's not your life anymore. So don't do that. Not because you're not supposed to. It's just realizing that those things don't fit you anymore. It's not the, the sweater that fits. But maybe you're thinking, well, how in the world in this day and age is it possible to live a life of sexual holiness? Well, the Bible not only assumes that it's possible, 
but it's expected. Verse, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, very popular verse, says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So it's possible, whatever temptation you're going through, God will never tempt you to a point that you're not able to handle it with, his, with God's spirit. You'll, there'll never be a breaking point where you're just like, there's no way out, I have to give in to sin. There's always a way out. So not only is it possible, but it's also expected. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 says, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this manner, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. For he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has given us his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is your helper to get you out of those situations. You're going like, you're, you're to have those situations. Not me. It's never happened to me. Like I remember in, in probably the farthest I've gone from God, being in those situations where you're in your youth group, and they're like, there's going to come that evil day where there's a temptress. And, and like there's that youth pastor talking about how like, there is this like really hot woman who like threw herself at him and he's like, be gone, you know, devil woman. And, and just like this crazy scenario where he, she's like trying to sleep with him like a Joseph and Potiphar's wife thing. But that's never happened to me in my life. So I remember being like 18 years old and like, pr like not praying, but like hoping that happened to me. Like, I just want to like be at that point where I can turn a person away when they're like throwing themselves at me. And that's the way I thought when I was like 18 years old, you know, it never happened. Never happened. Probably because I wouldn't have been able to handle it. God knew that was a temptation that I definitely would not be able to handle. I was not Joseph. I'm not Joseph turning on Potiphar's wife. I definitely would have probably given into it. Therefore, God knows what your weaknesses are. And he's not going to put you to the point of breaking. But that means that when there's that way of escape, we always have to take it. So let me give you some practical principles. Number one. Don't delay in dying to sin. Don't delay in dying to sin. It is such a good principle that when you know to do something, you just do it right away. And when you know not to do something, you don't, you don't put it off. Because the longer you walk in impurity, the harder it is and more painful it is to stop. If you're sleeping with your girlfriend or boyfriend, you stop now. Because if you don't stop now, you may never stop. There was a point in time when Pharaoh's heart became so hard that God stopped trying to soften it and instead it only became harder. There comes a point of no return. It's never guaranteed that you're going to turn your life around and you're going to come back to the Lord. So that's why Hebrews chapter 3 verse 7 says, Today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness. The people of Israel wandered for 40 years in the wilderness before they got to the promised land. And only a couple people, Joshua and Caleb, who were the original people from that group, actually made it to the promised land. Everybody else died in the wilderness. You never want to be a person like that. Like Ravi Zacharias, like the most tragic story. 
like lives a life for God, apparently, ostensibly. And then he dies and then the sex scandal comes out about his life. And like people, so we, we actually know a guy from the church who works for Riley Zacharias International Ministries. So did you still call it that? I don't know. But how tragic it is that all of your, your work for the Lord in this life is just tarnished because you gave in to sin. So don't delay in dying to sin. Number two, that leads to keep short accounts with sin. Keep short accounts with sin. All of us should have one person at least that you can tell anything to. And we should always be willing to share things even get before it gets to the point of temptation and even before it gets to the point of us actually giving into sin. So I have guys in my life who I can talk to when I'm just feeling like, well, it wasn't really temptation, but I would rather make a habit of sharing embarrassing things than get to a point where there's something I saw or something I did that I'm embarrassed about and I, because of the shame, I hide it. I rather, and this is so important, cultivate the kind of life where you can't be embarrassed. Does that make sense? Cultivate the kind of life where there's a person in your life that is the same gender, same sex, that you can share anything to and you don't care what they think about you because you know that they're for you and they're for your sanctification and therefore they're gonna walk those things with you. There'll be plenty of times where I'm just like, all right, it's one of those things where you're like on Facebook and there's a pop-up ad and like, I really didn't think about it, but like, it just, it was like a glance, it was like a thought, and it just made me feel weird. So now I'm gonna like text my friend and be like, hey, I don't think I'm gonna go back to that website, but I have the propensity I know I could. So I'm gonna text you, so now I won't. Like, you know how it is, it's like, it's not technically sin. Like, if there's a really cute girl on your Instagram and you look at her profile, and you're like looking at her for two seconds or for, you know, vice versa for, for guys and girls. But then it's like, but then you scroll back and you look at their profile and then you're like kind of creeping on them. You're like looking through pictures and stuff. At some point you're like, well, it's still not really sin, but is it helpful? Is that the right? And so then you're like talking to somebody like, hey, I spent a total of embarrassingly like 15 minutes looking at this girl's profile. I didn't see anything bad or stumbling, but I recognize that wasn't healthy. This is not a real story, by the way. So I'm just hypothetical. So and that's not a joke either. So um, be, a, be a person who is not easily embarrassed so that you have a culture of openness. Number three, that also leads to watch what you watch. You know, David, it all started with a glance and a look. And that look became a gaze. And that gaze became a stare. And that led to action. So be careful what you're feeding yourself with. Like, there'll be plenty of times I'm watching a show with Jenna. Like, there are shows that I will never watch unless Jenna's watching with me. And there's always that point on the show, especially if it's like Netflix or whatever, that you're like, you just pull up the blanket. Like, all right. Put it on mute. Like, is it over? And I'm like looking at Jenna's like, is it over? She's like, it's over. Okay. Just be, but like, you got to be careful what you watch. Because as you become used to those things and they're filling up your brain, what are you going to think about in your spare time? The things that you saw, the things that are going inside of your mind. Number four, some sin is relative. Some sin is relative. What does that mean? Well, the Bible says to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. 
Meaning like there's matters of conscience where you know God has told you to do something, you don't do it, and so you're sinning. There's all other things where it's a matter of conscience, like food offered to idols, you know, that passage, drinking, is, is it a sin or not a sin? For some people it is, some, some people it's not. Some sin is relative. For some people, it's like you might be like the farthest you can go with the girlfriend is like holding hands. And after that, anything you do is like stumbling or you're entering into sin. Like you're opening up Pandora's box and once you do, it's just always easier to, to move forward. Like if, you, if you're just starting a relationship, maybe you're not, maybe you've been in a relationship forever, maybe you're already kissing, whatever else. But if you start to communicate non-verbally in physical manners, right? So you start holding hands with your girlfriend or boyfriend. It's the first time you ever did it. You always hold hands now. And if you don't hold hands, what happens? What's wrong? Are you okay? Are you having a bad day? You're upset with me? You mad at me? Why does that happen? Because you chose to take a nonverbal way of communicating to say, I love you. Same thing with kissing. You're, okay, all we'll do is kiss goodnight. That's all we're going to do. And then you feel stumbling like, oh, I think that's a little too far. I think we're getting into dangerous ter territory. So you stop kissing. It's like, what's wrong? You don't like me anymore? It's like, no, it's not that. I just felt like, you know, maybe I'm being stumbled. And then she's like, stumbled? Wasn't it? I'm making you sin? And then she feels guilty. Like the whole thing's weird and it's a mess. So you got to understand like there will come a point that some sin is relative and you have to recognize where that line is. So you can't look at other couples and go, well, they hold hands and they kiss and they do whatever. You can't do that. Because at the end of the day, you got to do what God's calling you to do and set up the standards that God's calling you to stand, uh, set up. Number five, sinful dating sets you up for sinful marriage. Sinful dating sets you up for sinful marriage. So not trying to be the purity police here, but a lot of you are in relationships or are going to enter into relationships, so it's just helpful to know. But if you are dating someone and you're constantly giving into sexual temptation, right? And you're like, oh, we know, we're going to do better. You can't expect that it all stops when you get married. The same kind of selfishness you practice in dating will follow you in marriage which is important to know that like you should be uh, holding each other in the utmost respect and regard even before you're married because that's what's going to carry into your marriage if you do that before. But you can't imagine like it's been said that, you know, Satan's job is to get you as close as possible before marriage and then far away as possible after marriage. And so that's kind of what happens is you're sexually intimate as you're dating you get married, and then Satan says, now it's time to be sexually intimate with everyone and everything else. And it's dangerous. So practice that holiness even before you get married. Lastly, let's look at verses 8 through 9, and then we'll, we'll close. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, was neither Jew, uh, Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. So not only is it purity inside, but it's conduct outside. It talks about anger or hatred, wrath or outbursts, malice, which is evil intent, blasphemy, which is slander, filthy language, which is obscene speech, and lying, which, you know, nobody does that. Everybody tells the truth here. And oftentimes we'll look at things and we'll say, well, you know, that's not really a big deal. 
And we don't want to just skim over that because 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, the Bible says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who is the not, does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? So, so, so many times they'll say like, well, I'm pure, I'm doing everything right, you know, I'm sexually pure, all these things. And then you just have somebody in the church you just haven't forgiven. You just hate their guts. And you're jealous or whatever else it is. You're bitter. And so it's not that big of a deal. And well, the Bible says, if you say that you hate your brother and you say you love God, you're lying. How can you say that you hate a person made in the image of God, but you love God who you've never even seen before? Matthew chapter 6, verse 15 says, if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. So, got to know that God expects us to have that conduct in the church. You know, the church is supposed to be the place that people step in and say, wow, I've never met people like you before. You're the most loving, forgiving, kindest people that I've ever met in my life. And so hatred, violence, slander, it has no place in the life of a Christian. Instead, we're supposed to be the new man, which is the image of Christ. So God's goal is for all of us as Christ followers to grow in the knowledge of him. So the things that we do naturally are the fruit of the spirit. It's never about like, okay, I'm going to try really hard never to be angry anymore. I'll try really hard never to be wrathful or malice or lie or whatever. All those things are deeply ingrained habits. And the only thing that can usher them out is a change heart from the inside out, is a new heart from Jesus Christ. So now you have a love for people. So the difference is when you have a heart from above that God gives you a love for people, it's very hard to love people and hate people at the same time. You know what I'm saying? It's really hard to not be able to forgive someone when you understand how much you've been forgiven. It's really hard to hold people accountable for their sins when you understand that God's never held you accountable for your sins. The more that we understand grace and what Jesus Christ has done for us and the depths he went to save us, the more that we're like, you know what? I, I'm not gonna just like lash out in anger at this person because I know that God never did that with me, although I deserve it. I know what kind of pathetic person I am. I know how bad my sin is. And you recognize that God does not hold any of those things against you. It's very hard to hold that anger towards other people. So if we find ourselves lashing out in anger, covetous, all those things just come from a lack of being able to understand who God is. So understand like, it's Watchman Nee, who's an author, once said that it's not like when you're praying, you, you should ever pray like, God, help me to just really experience peace. Like give me, like peace is like this package that comes from heaven. You're like, I feel peaceful. Wow, that's awesome. God, help me to be loving. And then like, boop. You just download love into your brain. And the next day, you're like, I just can't help but love people. The answer is that you would have Jesus alive in your hearts. It's Jesus in you that loves somebody else. God, I can't love, I can't forgive that person. Well, I know you can't. I can't. But Jesus can. It's Christ living inside of you, living out. So it's not about like, God, really help me to start loving this person. It's God, I want to be a vessel that you can show your love to that person. God, I'm having very hard, a very hard time forgiving that person, but I pray that you would use me as a vessel of forgiveness, the same forgiveness you want to offer to them, the same forgiveness I have received. So in conclusion, 
To put off the old man means that we need to recognize two things. That the Lord will satisfy the longings of our heart. And that's why we can be pure. You're struggling with your singleness today? Recognize that God himself can satisfy those longings. And number two, if you are feeling so upset with other people, recognize that the Lord will bring justice to those who are being mistreated. The Bible says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. But it's very hard. You know, the Bible says, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the two are contrary towards one another. It's impossible to be in the spirit and sinning at the same time. It's impossible to abide in Christ and to sin at the same time. That's why Pastor Lloyd always says like, the times that he would be tempted or, or lusting, he would start praying for the person that he's tempted you know, to glance at or you know, whatever image on the movie or whatever. It doesn't matter. He would start praying like, you know what? That's a person that Jesus Christ died for. I'm going to pray for that person's soul. And the more that you pray for somebody, you find yourself getting out of that place of selfishness, which is why I think the, I think the key to combating all lust is in Hebrews chapter 11, where it talks about Moses. Recognize that Moses was a Jew. Somehow he got into a palace. He was next in line to become the next Pharaoh. Could have had everything that he could have ever wanted. He could have had women, wealth, fame, power. And he left all those things. Why? Why did he give it up? I'm just going to quote it because... I forget it off the top of my head. God, what, what was it? I don't remember. Just kidding. I do remember, but I'm not going to misquote it. Hebrews chapter 11. Where's Hebrews? I found it. Um, what do you say? Okay. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24. This is, this is like the key verse, I think, to escaping sexual temptation. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. I love that. It's so good. So it's impossible to take advantage of someone and suffer for them at the same time. And Moses, what he saw is that he had access to all the riches of Jesus, uh, Egypt, but he knew there, he had access to the riches of Jesus through suffering. And so anytime that I'm starting to feel like I'm starting to have a problem with lusting or temptation, I not like necessarily ask for it, but I recognize that I need to suffer for people. Because if I suffer for people, that's the greatest way to humble yourself, get rid of all that pride, because you're living self-sacrificially for others. Let's pray.